Well, let's get, let's get started and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this new day. We thank you that we celebrate Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we walk in him. We thank you for the word you've given us, which teaches us. Lord, instruct us this morning. Teach us from your word. Help me to teach it faithfully and truly. And Lord, we just pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. Well, we're in Galatians 5, 1 through 6 this morning. So I'll start us by reading the passage, and then we're going to dive into these great words of Paul. So everybody coming in, there's, there are handouts floating around. So, okay. I've got more here if we need them. Great. So I'm going to start by reading Galatians 5, 1 through 6. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by grace. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So it's been about three weeks since we've been in the book of Galatians. And this is a a theologically intense book. Let's put it that way. And Paul has strong, great arguments. And uh, we're in a transition point in the book because in the first four chapters, Paul has been making strong arguments about what? Who can just say in a, in a sentence or two what Paul's been arguing about to the Galatian church? Say that again. Law versus Christ, that's exactly right. And as you can see from these verses, it's all going to come to a head now about what all those arguments mean. So let me go back a minute. Let me read a few verses from some of the preceding chapters because they're going to kind of set the foundation for, again, what we're talking about this morning. Let me go back to Galatians 3. Just keep in mind everything I'm going to read because it's going to be very important to what Paul is saying this morning. Galatians 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Listen to these words, because Paul's going to come right back to these words, verses 10 and 11. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. So Paul has made that argument multiple times, as we said, in these first four chapters that we're not justified by the law. We're justified by grace through faith by the works of Christ. And then let's flip over to chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. And I won't read all these verses again. But these verses 4, 21 through 31 are the preceding verses that comes right up to this section we're going to talk about this morning. Do you remember the argument Paul made as he's kind of summarizing all of these arguments that there were two women, right? There were two covenants, right? Abraham had how many sons? Two sons, right? The one was born by Hagar, and who was that? That's right, the bond slave. And that was the son of the flesh, right? Because God had made a promise to Abraham. What was the promise God had made to Abraham? Brooke, you've got it right on your, you've got, I see it's coming the words out of your mouth. What promise had he made to? Yes, a nation and many descendants. But what was the problem with Sarah? She was barren, right? So what did Abraham do? He did what we all do. I can help God out with this, right? And Sarah was part of it, right? Sarah was part of this problem, right? I mean, you know, we got Hagar, just go have a son, right? And that's what, that's what Abraham did. But that was not by faith. That was not the promise. And that's the argument Paul is making to summarize all of this. Look at even Abraham. The son that came by the flesh is by the law. It's similar to the law. It's Mount Sinai. It's in bondage. It's in slavery. The free son, the free son came through Sarah by waiting, by trusting, by faith in the promises of God. And Paul makes that argument, Galatians, you are the free people. You're like Isaac who came through Sarah. You're like that, that by faith. And so then he comes now to his great argument in chapter 5, verse 1. The freedom we have in Christ. In these verses, Paul is again going to bring everything to a head that he's been saying. Verse 1 of chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. You know, the human heart longs for freedom, right? I mean, we, we see that prisoners want to escape from prison, right? One of my favorite movies is The Great Escape. You know, how they dug those tunnels and they, they wanted to be out of the prison. People who are under political tyranny want freedom, right? I mean, that's how our nation was birthed. It was birthed in that kind of desire for liberty from the rule of England. But this is a different kind of freedom. This is the different kind of freedom that Christ bought for us. In fact, Paul emphasizes those words, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. It is, it's the goal of Christ. It was his, the goal of his work that he would set us free. So what did Christ set us free from? What did he do? 
sin and death. Let's look over at John 8. Let's listen to the words of our Lord himself. John 8, verse 31. Jesus will tell us himself what he set us free from. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's offspring and have never been enslaved to anyone. Let's forget about Egypt. Let's forget about Babylon. Let's forget about Rome, right? <laughs> they've always, they've been enslaved throughout the history of their nation, right? We've never been enslaved. How is it that you say you shall become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. That's, again, a theme that we're seeing in Paul. If we're in sin, we're under bondage, we're enslaved to it, right? And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If, therefore, the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So what is the Lord saying he sets us free from? Yes, yes, sin and its penalty. That's right, Susan. That's right. He sets us free from sin. And that's the goal of his work. He came to do that, to set us free. And how does he do that? Let's look at, I have down Romans 6, 1 through 7, but let's turn to a different passage. You can pencil this in. Romans 8. This summarizes it so well. From the pen of this apostle Paul himself. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So how did God do it? How did God do it? How did he set us free from sin? What did Christ do? I hope you heard this. If you can't, Susan said it all in a nutshell. He sent the perfect, sinless Son of God into this earth out of his love for us. Jesus, the Son of God, he's fully man, like I'm fully man, like you're fully man, yet he was without sin. Think of that. He was human nature, divine nature. They were not intermixed. He lived out his life on this earth as a man perfectly, perfectly. Therefore, he could go to the cross having lived out all the requirements of the law perfectly, perfectly. His righteousness was perfect. He could bear the penalty for our sins. As Dusty's going to teach us in the weeks and months to come through the book of Hebrews, he was the ultimate sacrifice that made the blood of bulls and goats 
useless, right? He came and bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, believing in him, might receive that grace and forgiveness from him that God would take the righteousness of his son for those who believe and put it in our bank account. And that's the way God sees us. He sees us in that absolute perfect righteousness of his son. This is so important because this is core to the message that Paul is trying to teach these Galatians. Everything that Susan said and that we're talking about is it's his righteousness. It's his perfect obedience to the law, which we could never do. That's how we're liberated. That's how Christ set us free. And that's the freedom he gave us, the freedom from slavery and bondage to sin. So while we're talking about this, we just have a question. Does that mean that since we're perfectly free, do we have any obligations or can we do what we want to do? Or how would God have us to live? We're going to talk a little bit about this in Galatians 5, 6. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk a whole lot about this in Galatians 5, 13 through 15. Do we have obligations even though we're free? I put a quote from Martin Luther in here in your notes that I think is just wonderful. Luther said it all. Luther said it so biblically. A Christian is an utterly free man. We've just talked about this. There is nothing that hangs over our head. No sin, no guilt, no condemnation, as Paul said in Romans. We are totally free. We're sons of God. We call him Abba, Father. Yet, what did Luther, and Luther said? We're free, we're Lord of all, subject to none. However, a Christian man is an utterly dutiful man. That is, we have duties to everyone, right? We're servant of all, we're subject to all. We have the obligation to love, as our Lord Jesus said, to love one another, especially in this body, in the body of Christ. We're servants to one another. We're servants to build one another up. We're servants to edify one another, to help us along the road of sanctification, right? We are servants to all. And we're going to come back to that in a couple of weeks, but we do have obligations. So, in light of all of these freedoms that we have in Christ, especially the Galatians now, Paul's going to call them to two things. He's going to command them to do two things in the last part of verse 1. One is positive and one is the negative, okay? So, verse 1 again. I better turn back to Galatians here. I'm still in Romans. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So, what's the positive command Paul is giving the Galatians? Stand firm. That's right. So, when you think of... And this is a word that Paul uses a lot. I, use, I gave you several other references here where Paul frequently uses this word. In fact, I'll read a couple of these to you. Philippians 127 is a good one, but it's, it's multiple places in Paul's letters. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you remain, or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he'll say that many, many times to believers at multiple churches to stand firm 
It's kind of like a military term, right? It's like, hold your ground. I love old World War II movies, and there's that old movie, D-Day, by John Wayne. Wes, I bet you watch military movies too, right? Yeah. And you know that scene where they tell the British commandos they got to take this bridge, and their orders are hold until relieved. So they have to hold that bridge all night until whoever the next day against all the German fire and all that's going on, and they do it. They stand firm and hold the bridge. They accomplish the mission until they hear the Scottish bagpipes coming, right? (laughs) That's the great scene, right? They're coming to be relieved. But that's what Paul is telling us, is to hold your ground, hold firm, stand fast, stand like soldiers. And, you know, this is something we have to be reminded. We always have to be reminded of standing firm and holding our ground. Always, always, always. The Galatians, though, in fact, were kind of shifting around. Paul says that several times, Galatians 1, 6, about he's just, how they're just kind of shifting around. They're not holding their ground. They're giving in, right? They're giving in to another gospel. So what's the negative command? That's, that's the positive command, keep standing firm in freedom. What else does Paul go on to say? What's the negative command? The end of that verse Keep standing firm and do not what? That's right. Do not be subject to a yoke of slavery. What was the slavery that he's talking about here? Keeping the law. That's right. So if you think about back to Galatians 4 that we studied a few weeks ago, Paul used this analogy again. I can go back to um, verses 9 through 11. Actually, verse 8. Galatians 4, verse 8. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. So Paul, these are Gentiles, right? These are not Jews he's talking to. So they were not in previously in bondage to the law, but they were in bondage to their pagan way of life, right? They worshipped idols. They did probably all the immoral things that were so prevalent in those days, the cult prostitutes and all those things that were part of their culture, and they were enslaved by their sins to their pagan gods. And Paul has taught them, what you're doing now by going back to observe the Jewish law is putting yourself right back into slavery, just like you were before Christ brought you out of that slavery and redeemed you. So that's what he's talking about, is going back into that kind of slavery. In fact, Paul throughout this letter will liken observance of the Jewish law and particularly what they're about to do, take circumcision as becoming slaves again. Galatians 2.4, it was because of false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. So that's a good example in this letter where Paul says they're coming in to bring this Jewish Judaizing uh, philosophy to you, to bring you back into bondage. And again, we just read Galatians 4, 9. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over? So we've talked about this before, but the purpose of the law was what? God gave the law, right? 
God gave the law. The law is from him. David said in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. There's nothing wrong with the law because it's God's word and he gave it to his people. But what has happened? What is the problem that's happened with the law? What happened with the Pharisees? They saw the law and they never saw Christ. They never saw the God behind the law, right? That was the problem. The law never did what it was intended to do. The the law was intended to show them their sins, to show them their need for the Messiah. The law was intended to point them to him. The law, as Paul said, was the schoolmaster, the the one who was always there. And the schoolmaster was not just a teacher, it was a disciplinarian, as we talked about. The disciplinarian who was always there to correct them, right? And if you read Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, every bit of their life was regulated for a reason, by the law, to show them they're sinners. That was God's grace. It was God's mercy to show them, you need the coming Messiah. But they rejected the common Messiah, and they became the Pharisees, right? And Paul, as you know, as he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So going back to the law is going back to that which would enslave them again to that thing which was supposed to show them that we're sinners. In essence, they're forsaking all of that liberty that they have in Jesus Christ that they might go back into this bondage, back into the bondage of sin, back into that thing which was supposed to point them to Christ to begin with. So I have a really good quote here, and and Morris is not me. This is Leon Morris, the great New Testament commentator. I think he's one of these dead saints, and he's really good. He's really good. Um, The Galatians saw the enticement of Judaizers as the entrance into a more wonderful way of serving God. Paul saw it as a descent into slavery. So if you kind of put yourself in the shoes of the Galatians and the Galatian church, again, what was going on there is you had these Judaizers who were saying, come back into the law. You want to be better Christians? You want to be super Christian? You want to be complete Christians? You want to really honor and serve God? You need to keep the law. That's what you need to do. They were enticing them in. I mean, this is, we see this in cults, right? This is kind of the way cults and false religions suck people in as they say, you can be a better relationship with God or whatever and they suck them in the Judaizers were sucking them in this way so Paul now has the very strict words of warning in the next three verses about the consequences so for those Galatians who were on the cusp of doing this going back into the law and specifically for the males that accept circumcision he has some very very dire warnings about the consequences. So, verses 2 through 4, let's read those again as we start to look at them. Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Remember what we just read in Galatians 3? Same thing. James says this also. If you try to keep the law, you accept circumcision, you better keep the whole thing perfectly. And guess what? We'll never do that. We're born in sin, right? We're the children of Adam. We're born in sin. We could, it's impossible we could keep the law. But that's what you have to do. You have to do what 
Jesus did, right? You'd have to do exactly what he did from the time he was born on this earth until he gave up the spirit on the cross, never sin. And not only that, keep the law positively. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbors yourself, all of those things. I don't think we do that. I don't think any of us do that. You'd never do that, right? You'd have to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, and these are the words, you have fallen from grace. And we shall talk about what Paul means by that. So these are the strong and dire warnings. Back to verse 2. Paul starts with this unique address to them. He says, behold, I, Paul. Why is he saying that? So if one of you wrote a letter to your kids, like Susan, you might write a, write a letter to one of your kids and say, it's, it's me, it's Susan, your mom who's saying these things. What would you be saying to them? I'm your mom. You're reminding them of the relationship yeah. and your love and care for them, and you, you have pure motives to remind them of this. Great. I knew you'd have a great answer. <laughs> That's exactly right. Reminding them of your love and your care and your relationship to them. And I think that's exactly what's behind this because Paul is making these, these very dire warnings, but he loves these Galatians. It's, you see this again and again throughout this letter. He is their pastor. He is their shepherd. He is the one who brought them to Christ. He brought the gospel to them. He loves them dearly from his heart. And so that's the way he addresses them. Listen to me. It's me. It's Paul. I'm the one who brought the gospel to you. I pray for you. I love you. I'm pleading for your souls in this. Also part of this may be his authority as an apostle. He's reminding them that I'm Paul because he's talked about that a lot earlier in the letter, right? He reminded them about his conversion and how he met Christ on the road and how he became an apostle. And he's probably reminding them who he is. We can also imagine that the Judaizers were lying to the Galatians about who Paul was. And Paul's kind of reminding them, this is who I am. Remember, it's me, it's Paul. I'm the one who loved you. So let's talk about this issue with circumcision. Because he says next, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So what's the issue with circumcision? Because Paul has never mentioned circumcision before in this letter. This is the first time in Galatians He's actually come now to the big issue. Is there anything intrinsically wrong with being circumcised? Timothy. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Requiring a man. Hold on, we're going to come to that too. That's exactly the issue. That is exactly the issue because Paul himself is circumcised, right? The vast majority of males nowadays are circumcised. If, if there was a problem with circumcision, a lot of us would be going to hell, right? <laughs> We'd be in trouble, right? But there's not an intrinsic issue with circumcision. Circumcision is just cutting of the male flesh, right? In fact, if you look in Acts, I gave you the reference. At one point, Paul circumcised Timothy, right? But he did it for the right reasons. You know, it was as a witness, as evangelism to them, right? So Paul at one point did circumcise, but he also at one point did not circumcise Titus, right? He says that to us in chapter 2 of this letter. That is because 
there was the point that Timothy is making is he did not want to be sucked into this pressure by the Jews. You've got to be circumcised because Paul was making the point is you don't have to be circumcised, especially to be saved. Nothing can be added. That is the issue with circumcision. Um, It is, as Timothy said, if circumcision gets added on as a requirement for salvation and rightness with God, it is heresy, right? It is destroying the gospel. And that is the issue that's going on right now with the Galatians. So they are already falling into the law. We kind of talked about that. Galatians 4.10, they were starting to observe the seasons and the months and the festivals. It's clear they were already kind of going down that pathway. But circumcision was kind of the last big deal, right? That was the last big deal because God gave circumcision as a sign of the covenant, right? He gave that as a sign to Abraham. Now, we know, Paul said, Abraham was not justified by circumcision. He was justified by faith, but it was the sign of the covenant. And so these Judaizers are telling the Galatians, you know, if you're really going to go all the way, if you're really going to be right with God and a, and a, and a right Christian, you've got to be circumcised. And for a Galatian who is a Gentile, this is a big deal, right? This was, would have been kind of abhorrent to the Gentiles. Um, much less painful, but it would have been abhorrent to them. However, so this is a big step that obviously some of them are about to take. Again, circumcision itself, there's nothing wrong with it. God gave it as that promise to the nation. He, the cutting of the flesh was symbolic that they were cut out from all the nations. R.C. says, R.C. Sproul says this, that they were cut out from all of the nations. They were set apart for, for him. But it was also a sign to the Jews that if you don't obey the covenant, you too will be cut off from God. The glory is, guess who was cut off from God for us who did not deserve it? It was Jesus Christ. When Christ was hung on a tree, he was made a curse for us. He was cut off from God for us. But this is the issue with circumcision, and we have to understand this. We have to understand the very heart of this. They were about to abandon the gospel. That's the issue, right? The Galatians were about to literally abandon the gospel and accept circumcision. So that's why I say in the next point, it's circumcision or Christ. It's circumcision or Christ. It can't be both. It's either you accept circumcision and you follow the Jewish law and you've abandoned Christ or you follow Christ. So here's another great quote. What the Galatians perceived to be a necessary supplement to their faith, Paul views as a radical break with faith. Because no longer are they walking in faith with God. Now they're adding works, right? Now they're adding works to their faith. I like what Hendrickson, he, Hendrickson's another really fine New Testament commentator. This is great. He says, a Christ supplemented, follow that, a Christ who is supplemented, that is, if you've supplemented something to the work of Jesus Christ, you've added anything to his perfect work, that's a Christ who is supplanted, right? You can't have it either, you can't have it both ways. The true gospel is Christ alone. That's what we believe, Christ 
alone. Adding circumcision and works is no longer Christ alone. We're supplanting Jesus Christ. So that's why Paul says, verse 3, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation. Sorry, forgive me. Let me go back to verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. What is the benefit we receive from Jesus Christ? Forgiveness of sins. And we've, just, we've been talking about it. That's exactly right. Because, all right, Timothy, forgiveness of sins, why? Because of his righteousness, right? We, we will lose his righteousness. His righteousness will be of no benefit to us. His perfect righteousness. Our dirty, filthy righteousness. All the works that we can do are just filthy, right? All the works that we do they often come out of impure motives. They're not like Jesus Christ. Think of everything the Lord did was perfect in his motives, the way he did it, the way he carried out everything before God. It was perfect. That will be lost. The benefits of Jesus Christ, they could not claim to be in him benefiting from his righteousness if they follow this path. And then, verse 3, if you receive circumcision, you are under obligation to keep the whole law. We've talked about this. That's it. You can't just have it a little bit. It's not Christ plus a little bit. Of if you're going to try to be sanctified, justified, all of this by the law, you better keep all of it. But you know what? You're starting out from a place where you can't do it anyway, right? Because you're born in sin. You're dead in sin. It's, it's impossible for you to keep the whole law. There's just no way it can be done. And then verse 4. Oh, this is another good quote from Mu. No person is able to satisfactorily do the law because the power of sin prevents them from doing the whole law, which they must obey if they are to find justification in the law. So even if we tried, the sin dwelling in us would keep us from doing that. Back to those impure motives, all of those things that are so different than our Lord Jesus Christ. We could never do it. So now verse 4. You have been severed, alienated, cut off from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Turn over to Ephesians 2. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 a moment. We cannot talk about this enough. We have to understand the core of the gospel. Because this is the issue. This is why Paul will say you have fallen from grace. You are cut off from Christ. Because they are absolutely denying the heart and soul and core of the grace of God and the gospel. Ephesians, you, many of you have this memorized. I'm sure. But I won't call them names. <laughs> Don't smile at me, right? I used to have professors, you know, if they'd sm you'd smile at them, they'd call on you. So you're like, hide, right? Okay. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So it's God's grace. It's God's eternal love, right? It's God's electing eternal love. It's, that's his grace. It's by his grace that we are saved. That has nothing to do with us, right? We just receive it through faith. We just, our faith doesn't save us. It's the instrument by which we receive his grace, his redeeming work, right? It's not of ourselves, right? Paul couldn't be any more clear. It's not of ourselves. There's just nothing we can do, right, to save ourselves and to bring us in relationship with him. It is the gift of God. I mean, again, how clear could Paul be? It is God's gift. Verse 9 there, not a result of works. There's nothing we could do. So, with the Galatians jumping back into circumcision, all this, how are they denying this gospel? What are they denying? What are the key elements of the gospel they're denying here? Yes, the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice, right? Yeah. And what else are they doing? They're doing works, right? Yeah. And if they're doing works, if you do works, it's kind of like, well, I'm doing this work. I should be paid. I should, you're trying to earn it, right? And Paul says, it's not of works. It's the gift of God. And the other problem with works is, as Paul says, we boast, right? Well, we're good Christians. Well, we're great Christians. We do all this, and that's maybe what was going on in Galatia is they're saying, we're going to be the super Christians now. We're going to boast. We're going to add all these things we do to our salvation, and we're going to be super Christians. We can fall into these pitfalls too, can't we? Can't we? How do we fall into these, even though we may not be on the verge of losing our salvation, but how do we fall into these traps as Christians nowadays, adding to our faith. Legalism is one way, right? Legalism is a big way that we add, we try to add to our faith, to our salvation. We can't. We can't add not a dime to it, right? Nothing we can add to our faith. It's the gift of God. So we have to avoid the legalism and the pitfalls I'm not talking about sanctification. We need to be sanctified. We need to be like the Lord Jesus. But that comes from our heart of love for him and love for one another. But we don't fall into those pitfalls that if we do this, this, and this, we'll be greater Christians or better Christians. No, that's the core of the gospel. And that's why Paul will come to say now, you have fallen from grace. Let's talk about a couple of things. We believe in a couple of ways people say it. We believe in eternal security. We believe in once saved, always saved, right? That's a, Roland and I are good former Baptists. We know that. Once saved, always saved, right? But, but uh, and we also phrase it as the perseverance of the saints. That is, the true believers will persevere in their faith. True believers won't die Buddhists and denying God as, as, as atheists. True believers will persevere in their faith over the course of their life. And Paul absolutely believed this, right? Paul taught it. That's the heart of Romans 8, 28 and 29. I can, I can read that to you just so you'll know. It's so rich throughout all of Paul's letters. But Romans 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? I mean, in God's mind, if you're his, if he's chosen you for the foundation of the world, you're already glorified in his mind. He even passed through sanctification because he sees the righteousness of Christ, because you will not lose your salvation, because you are his. I also have in here, for your reference, the John 10 passage. This is from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and these are so encouraging. John 10, verse 25, Jesus said, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. God, he knows you. He knows you. Listen to him. I know them. And they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. From the words, the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, if you are his, no one can snatch you out of his hand ever, ever. And he will persevere you because he is the great shepherd. So Paul knows and he fully believes these things. But when he comes to Galatians to warn them, he is quite serious because they are, this is not an issue of sanctification. They're just in some sin. Because Paul talks about that in all his letters, right? You look at Ephesians 4 and the list of sins. He says, you, you, you've got to abandon those and walk with Christ. We're talking about abandoning the gospel. We're talking about supplanting Jesus Christ with another gospel. And that's why Paul has these harsh words. And truly, if they persevered in this, if they denied Jesus Christ, they could have no claim that they ever knew him that they ever truly believed the gospel and were his because no one who truly believes the gospel could do these things, supplant Jesus Christ and walk away from Jesus Christ and live in this life of works, abandoning that faith, abandoning that true gospel. So he's not, this is a dire, dire warning that Paul has and he does it out of love for them. I think this is the heart of that great shepherd that he's warned. You're about to fall over the cliff. You know, you're about to go over the gospel cliff. You're about to give it up. Stop. Listen. Because if you do this, you can never claim that you know Jesus Christ. You can never claim his gospel. That's why he warns them. John Stott said this. You cannot have it both ways. It is impossible to receive Christ, thereby acknowledging that you cannot save yourself and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming that you can, right? So you can't do both. You can't claim that I've got a gospel of grace by faith without works and then do works, right? You cannot do this. So these are Paul's stern, stern warnings to Galatians. And now he's going to kind of change his tone a little bit. I think we now in the last couple of verses see the pastoral heart of Paul. Paul is going to say, these are the consequences. This is what it looks like to work, to walk in the law, this is how you should walk. Galatians 5, verse 6. Verse 5, I'm sorry. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, 
are awaiting for the hope of righteousness. So Paul is saying to you Galatians who've accepted Christ, who are walking with him, walking in the spirit by faith, you're in stark contrast to those who want to walk in the law. The law is producing death, but the spirit produces life. So the Again, you'll see this again and again in Paul's letters, the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us who are truly believers. Jesus said, you know, and I won't read this passage for time's sake, but Jesus talked a lot about the coming of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John 16, he said, it is better that I go away because if I don't, and I'm paraphrasing, but if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come. Sinclair Ferguson said this once, and I, it meant... So I opened my eyes. What he's saying, Jesus is saying is, we'd all kind of like to have Jesus right here. Jesus is saying, it's better than I'm in heaven. And if the Spirit comes and lives in you, that's the mark of a Christian, is that the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who's in perfect fellowship with the Son and the Father always, is in us. Because that's part of his purpose, is he brings us into fellowship with the Father, with the Son. He witnesses to us all the time. We're going to see in the end of this chapter, he produces fruit in us, right? He produces those fruits that are marks of the Christian faith. But the Spirit is there always to encourage us, to point us to God, to teach us in the Word. You ever been in those moments when you're reading the Word of God and you just begin to understand and see things? That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is opening your mind, opening your heart. He's teaching you through the Word of God. So that's what Paul is saying is, This is so different than being a legalist. We, who are the true Christians, are walking in the Spirit, and through the Spirit, by faith, in contrast to works, by faith, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. In contrast, again, to earning righteousness and to trying to build this system that maybe I'll be good enough by keeping the law at the end, Paul's saying, no, no, no. As Christians, as Christians, we wait in faith. We have hope. Hope is that thing we have not yet seen, right? Hope is our eternal life. Hope is our eternal life with him in heaven. And that's how we walk in this life. We walk in this life in the power of the Spirit, awaiting that hope and awaiting that righteousness, the full enjoyment of that righteousness we have in Jesus Christ. What a different ethic it is in the church again, we're going to talk a lot about this in a couple of weeks in Galatians 13 through 15, where Paul's going to come right back to this, talk about what that means, that the Spirit works himself out in the church, in our lives. And then verse 6, he finishes, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. So what Paul is basically saying is it, nothing in the flesh, nothing in the flesh matters whether you're circumcised or not, but faith working through love. So this is the ethic again. This is the ethic in the church is that our faith works. And this is kind of again in contrast to legalistic works. But our works are like what Martin Luther said. Our works are that we're servant to one another. We're Lord over everything. We've been freed from, salva- from sin and saved by God's grace. But we work out everything in the church in our works of love towards one another. And that's what Jesus said is the new commandment he gives, that we love one another. By this will the world know that we are his 
by our love for one another. And these are the works that we do. And this is what Paul is emphasizing. And he's going to continue to emphasize this through the rest of this book. So just a couple of minutes, just a few application questions. These are questions for thought. We won't have time to discuss all of these, but do we live in the freedom we have in the gospel and glorious liberty of the sons of God? I always think about Paul. You think about the Pharisee of Pharisees who lived by the law. When he was saved, can you imagine the burden that fell off of that man's shoulders? And you you may feel that way when you were saved. The burden that fell off of your shoulders, you know, when the sin was gone, when you knew it was gone by the blood of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. If the Spirit dwells in you, you know that freedom you have in Him, that freedom. We have to work it out every day. We have to stand firm, right? But you have it. You have it in Christ. So just a question, what does that freedom look like for us? It's res- I think part of it is resisting legalism, resisting the temptations to fall back into bondage, living in that freedom we have in Jesus Christ. We talked a lot about this, understanding the essential core of the gospel. We have to understand it. It's glorious to think about it. It's God's love for us as believers. We have to live and always know the essential core of the gospel, of justification by grace through faith without any works. There's nothing you can ever add to your salvation. Thank the Lord, right? Because we just mess it up, right? It's there. We just live out that sanctification day by day. We live it out in faith, in the Spirit. The benefits we have in Jesus Christ, this is number E, it's a glory to think about being in union with Him. It's a glory to think about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us because of His work, that communion we have with the Father, that communion we get when we're in the Word, right, and when we're in prayer, those things that are so important, the way God teaches us. And then we talked a lot about this, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. J.I. Packer has a great chapter in his book, Knowing God. I'll put a shameless plug in for the bookstore, but we, that's a great book. It's a great book. I know Tom Pennington once said it was the number one book on his list, but Packer has a really good chapter about the Spirit in there. We, you know, we kind of get concerned about charismatics, but you know what? Don't let them steal the Holy Spirit from us. Go back and read... Go back and read what Jesus said, John 13 through 17, about the Holy Spirit, why he came, his work in our lives. It's so powerful. We should live in that. And finally, how do we see our faith work through love in the church? Oh, I I look forward to talking to this with you again in a couple of weeks about how we work it out, our faith in love as we serve and build one another up in Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's heart too. He wants to see these Galatians recovered and doing those things. So let's pray, and we'll worship. Lord, we thank you for this word. It just enraptures our heart to even think about your love for us, God. Redeeming, electing love is not a thing in us that deserved it, but it's your grace and your love and your mercy to us through our Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, may we walk in that. May we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, Him teaching us, drawing us in fellowship with you day by day. 
Lord, may we see that as we worship now and hear the word taught again and fellowship with one another. May this be rich and joyful. In your son's name we pray, amen.